Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So we've gathered this morning specifically to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Easter Sunday, or if you're a little more, uh, I don't know, you call it Resurrection Sunday officially. Easter has it's kind of a term that's thrown out there, but we like to call it Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that we specifically celebrate the resurrection. But actually, every time we get together on a Sunday, we do so to celebrate the resurrection. The reason why church is on Sunday morning mornings is because, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, after the Passover, on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the grave. And ever since that resurrection from the grave, the Christian church that Jesus founded has met on Sunday morning. So this is why, throughout the ages... The Christian church has met on Sunday, but we also take, uh, there's a thing called the church calendar, which helps us to, to narrow, to focus in on certain events in the life of Jesus and to remember them. And this morning we are paying special attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The passage that we're looking at this morning is, is revolutionized here in Romans chapter 6 with the idea, with the reality that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We affirm, we hold to, we believe, we hold to the truth that Jesus Christ was a real man in real space, time, and history. As much as you can reach across and, and touch your neighbor or, you know, whatever, or look at, you can shake hands as we got, came in this morning and shake hands as we leave and whatever. As much as you are really here, we affirm Jesus Christ really was alive in real space time history. There's, there are secular accounts written of the reality of this man who did live. This man walked on the earth. He performed miracles that were not disputed at the time when he performed them. No one claimed he didn't heal people. No one claimed he didn't raise people from the dead. No one didn't, they didn't claim he didn't calm the storm. All the miracles were, were taken as eyewitness accounts that they actually happened. This man performed miracles. This man taught like no one else taught. He taught with authority. He taught things like, you don't, you know, it wasn't, you heard what other rabbis say, and I'm going to, this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this, let me share with you my thoughts. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he taught 
with authority. This real man in real space time, in real history, shows up, performs miracles, teaches like no one has ever taught. He claims to be one with the Father. He says, I have come to save sinners. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many. This Jesus said that after doing this, after giving up his life, after going to Jerusalem and being killed as a prophet in the, outside of the city gates, he will raise from the dead three days later. This he did. We affirm the reality of Jesus and we affirm the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus in real space, time, and history. As we read the Matthew account, when they see Jesus, what do they do? They fall down and embrace his feet. Doubting Thomas gets that moniker because he wants to see Jesus. And what happens? Jesus shows up and he touches the holes in his hands and the wound in his side. Jesus is really physically, bodily there. Just As Jesus said he would, God raises him from the dead. They share a meal. They have fish for breakfast on the the shore. They go and he sees the disciples and they cook fish and he eats a meal with them. Jesus Christ really lived, really died, really rose from the dead. What does that then mean for us today? What does it mean that Christ has risen from the dead, that we celebrate He is risen, He is risen indeed? What does that matter? What does that mean for us today? Let me be honest with you. In one sense, it may not mean a whole lot to you. In one, in one sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ may mean nothing good for you at all. Because if you look at Romans 5, Paul starts in, in this little section with lifting up this one important Reality. Verse 5 For if we have been united with him in a death like his, in order to fully understand and appreciate the resurrection of Christ, we must first rightly see what the death of Christ was about. If you do not comprehend and see what the crucifixion, what the death of Christ was all about, what being united with him in his death, if you don't see what that's about, then the resurrection loses all of its meaning. You're not united with him in his death. There's no being united with him in his life. We have to understand what is meant in being united with Christ in his death. What was going on at the cross was a righteous man... Jesus Christ, who had never done any wrong, Jesus the Christ, it's not his last name, it's his title, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, a righteous man, never had done any wrong, never sinned, laid his life down. He was sinless, yet he dies a sinner's death. What's going on at the crucifixion is the fulfillment of the reality that all of the Old Testament pointed forward to. All of these sacrifices, all of this atonement being made time and time again, offering sacrifices that a sinful people would come and they'd bring a dove or a sheep or a lamb or whatever and it would be sacrificed or grain offerings. They would come and they would offer them up and the temple would take them and it would remit their sins. It would take away their sins for a time. And all of those sacrifices point forward to this reality that is shown in the death of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is given up. He lays his life down as a full sacrifice, for a perfect sacrifice for sinners to cleanse sinners of their sin before a holy and righteous God. You and I owe every second of our life to God. Every breath that you have taken this morning and are now currently sitting in this pew taking is not one that you have earned. It's not one that you have fabricated. It's not one that you have somehow cooked up and carried a bottle of air with you. You just breathe it. Every breath of air that you take this morning has been a gift to you from your creator. And how do we respond to just even that level of common grace from God? Well, how do we respond? We forget. We take it for granted. You know, I'll be honest with you. I wake up and I just assume I'm, I'm going to breathe. I, I do. I mean, I know we all do. And, and I step up on these steps and I just assume that all the molecules and everything that's held together in this wooden carpet and concrete, I just assume they're going to hold together. And so I just step right up here. But that is, an ed, that is evidence of the common grace of God that holds our world together. Every ounce of this creation is held together, created and held together by God. How do we respond? We forget. But in fact, we do worse. We rebel. We live as though God isn't God and as though we are. We live as though we are God and that He isn't. We launch a divine mutiny every time we fail to thank Him and glorify Him for the things that He has given us. We we are saying, this is what I have because it is mine, not this is what I have because God in His mercy has given it to me. That is usurping, that is mutiny, that is trying to say, God, I don't want you on the throne, I really am on the throne. For these rebellions, the God of love and justice must Respond. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. He must respond with a penalty that sinful rebels deserve. Which is why it is so important to first understand your sinfulness because then you can see the point of being united with Christ in His death. Every one of us in this room is sits under, in our natural state, the just condemnation of a righteous God because of our transgressions, because of our sinfulness, because of our failing to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our failure to love our neighbor as ourself. We deserve death. And what do we see on the cross? Good Friday. What is that about? The Savior comes and takes the suffering, takes the penalty, takes the wrath that sinners deserve. So then every one of you, every one of us, meaning every one of us in this morning, hearing this gospel message, this good news, can turn from that sin, can hate that sin, can run from that sin, look to Christ in faith, trusting in His work on the cross, and be cleansed, be forgiven of that sin, so that the wrath that was coming towards us is no longer coming toward us, but it is poured out upon Christ on the cross so that God's disposition toward us is no longer one of anger and hatred and wrath, but one of mercy, one of grace. This is what the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ is about. So if you have, just right now in this moment, this morning, if you have sin to turn from this morning, 
Let me plead with you to turn from it. There is no reason to cling to your sin. What your sin will earn you is justice. And the gospel message is that is not a justice you have to sit under. But a substitute has been provided. Christ has come to earth, lived the righteous life you should have lived, died the death you deserve, so that through repentance and faith in him, you could be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God as Father. But as we read on, that's Good Friday, right? Wait a second, Darren, we're here on Easter Sunday. Well, that's that's Good Friday. That's what the cross is about. But as we read on in Romans chapter 6, the Christian life is not just one of being united to Christ in his death. Absolutely essential has to be there that we recognize the death we deserve is what Christ took upon us. And therefore, by uniting ourselves to him in faith, his death becomes our death. But Christ doesn't stay dead. He resurrects from the grave. Christ doesn't stay dead. The repenting believer is also united with him in his resurrection. The Christian faith is not just centered around the death of Christ. It is also around the reality of him being raised to life for you. The message of Christianity is not just about Jesus going to the cross and dying for you. It is him being raised to life for you. It certainly is about death to sin and Christ's death in our place. But Resurrection Sunday, we specifically remember that the Christian faith is about being alive. It's about being alive. We, we, we get the rap, and I think sometimes we, we deserve it. I get the rap, and maybe I deserve it sometimes, that the Christian life is just about killing and putting to death, and then that translates in people's mind, the Christian life is just about putting to death all the things you really would enjoy. That's the way it's kind of taken, that what we say in the Christian life is, you know, Jesus died your death, put to death sin, therefore all the things you want to do, uh, they got to be put away, and you're going to go suffer and, and just be a sour Christian. The Christian message is one of finally coming to life. Finally being alive. Not, yes, putting death to sin, but coming alive to God in Jesus Christ. At this point, I want to, kind of, I want to point out there's a couple of different kinds of aliveness. A couple of different kinds of being alive. There's subjective aliveness. We'll get it. There's subjective aliveness and then objective Aliveness. Most of the time, we are stuck in subjective and our search for significance in subjective aliveness. I'll, give, I'll talk about what I mean there. Instead of objective aliveness. And what's the difference between this subjective aliveness and objective aliveness? Well, here's an example of what I mean. Um, I've, I've married and got two kids. Joel is six, Jana is three. And uh, boy, we're glad spring is here because we get to get out of the house and get the soccer net out and get the t-ball out and swings out and play and everything. We're we're super excited to be out in the yard. But let me be honest with you. We go out in the yard and I am amazing. Like nobody can kick a ball further than I can kick a ball. (laughs) Nobody can throw a football as accurately as I can throw a football. No one can run as fast. I'm the fastest person alive out in my yard. I mean, when we play tag, you only catch me if I let you. 
right? I mean, I am amazing. It's, 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 it's not even, it's hard to even comprehend how strong I am, how smart I am. When I'll put something together, I know how it, I'm the only, I know how it goes together. I am in that moment, subjectively awesome. I mean, and you get what I'm saying, right? That's, however, if, if we go shoot hoops or something like that, say we, we get a basketball hoop and we, and we got the little, little tykes thing, I'm just, I'm, no one can make more baskets than me. However, if I go up and play in, in a rec league, uh, that kind of all falls apart, doesn't it, at some point? <laughs> My subjective awesomeness is kind of fails in the objective reality that I'm not all that awesome. It all depends upon which pond I'm swimming in. You might be a, a big fish in a little pond. You know, that's kind of, that's what's going on. That's subjective aliveness as opposed to objective aliveness turns out i'm not really all that awesome when it gets out into the objective reality of the world but most of what we are searching for in life ends up being this quest for subjective happiness what we most of what we are after and searching for is just trying to be alive only thought of in the realities of of how they relate to the other people that are around us, other people in our peer group. We might think this way. We say things like, well, my marriage at least is happier than theirs. You know, or we might say, um, I, I, um, we might say things, we're able to get more things than them. I have more stuff. I have more toys. Look at them. They're, look at the cars they have to drive. You know, and, and I get to drive nicer cars. My house at least is, is a nicer house. We might say things, I go on, we go on better vacations. You might say my job is more meaningful. You know, that poor person has to walk in the rain sometimes all day long. And at least, at least my job is better than, than his job. And all of that, and we are constantly clamoring. If you could take a moment to be honest, we are constantly in this cycle of searching for some way to be subjectively happy. Subject, and by looking at this small pond and just find ways to just prop ourselves up a little bit, subjectively alive. We say, and if our desires all go, are placed in this area, most of all this searching in life is a quest for this subjective aliveness. All of our desires then are placed there as well. We begin to believe and say things like, I'll be happy when I finally get more money. When I get money like this person, look at the vacation they took. I would be happy if I could go there. Or we might say things like, uh, if um, my kids would just behave like their kids, then I would be happy. Or a very popular one, if I could just look like they look. If I could just, you know, get to my whatever fit position, if I could just get to this, this image, then I'd be happy. And what we are doing is we are storing up subjective happiness. We are putting all of our treasures in this subjective happiness. We say things like, you know, if only I didn't live somewhere where it turned into the frozen tundra in the winter, then I'd be happy. Then, I, you know, why don't I live in Florida? Why don't I live in Hawaii? Why don't I live somewhere where it's nice year round? But too hot in the summer. So, yeah, but but all of that is 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 piling up subjective happiness, and so much of our life is just caught up in trying to get this subjective aliveness. Well, what's wrong with that? You might say. I suppose. I mean, on one hand, nothing really. I mean, you can live your life marching from subjective pursuit and subjective joy, and on and on and on. Nothing's wrong with that for a while. For a while. 
And, and maybe you actually achieve some of those subjective joys. Maybe you, get, maybe you get your finances figured out. Maybe you get the body you want. Maybe you finally find the, the partner that brings you fulfillment in this life. And you've, you finally got it. Maybe you move to a better climate. Maybe you get these things that you banked on, this look and this lifestyle that you banked on. Maybe you get it and it brings you this momentary life. Maybe you get rid of a problem issue or go on a great vacation. But one day something comes along that is too big for your subjective aliveness. Sickness comes to your house. Maybe death comes to your house. Maybe that dark cloud comes that, that, that is not able to, over your, your subjective joys, piled up though they may be, cannot break through this, this darkness, this awfulness. And you're piling more subjective happiness into, into your life, this subjective hope, and it cannot break through. But you know, maybe it isn't that dramatic. I'm being kind of dramatic. You know, cancer, things like that show up. Subjective joy is not going to hold the day whenever your life is in jeopardy. You need something bigger. But also, just in the mundane events of life, subjective joy is fine until you just go back for the 900th time to the sink full of dishes. And the kids are, are, are horrible at going to sleep for the uncountable times night in a row. I can't get them to bed. Subjective joy doesn't win the day there. We need something bigger. We need something more. And then as soon as we, we fight this subjective joy, what do we do? We sit down and get on social media and, and it just condemns us even more with how wonderful everyone else's life is. My argument is that Resurrection Sunday absolutely affects Easter Monday because in the resurrection, we see that not only did our sins get removed by our union with Christ, but newness of life, true aliveness comes to all through their union with Christ in his resurrection. It's what Paul is trying to communicate in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does being alive to God mean? It's this awareness that Paul has that even as Christ was raised to eternal life and our union with his death and with his resurrected life, we have this eternal resurrected life hidden with God in Christ. It's what Paul talks about there in that Ephesians chapter 2 passage we went over. Even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, he saved it. God made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That the person who is united with Christ in his death is also united in his resurrection such that your reality, your citizenship isn't even in this world anymore. It's with God. It's in Christ. It's in the heavenly places. It is an unshakable citizenship given to us by union with this resurrection. Being alive to God is having an aliveness that can never be diminished or stolen. And that's why Paul urges us to set our minds upon Christ and where he is because we are there with him. How does this help us then on Monday? Can Easter really make a difference in our lives? And I, I want to try to press on that because 
We gather on the Sunday, we, we get together, we, we do the, the thing we're supposed to do, but boy, how does this help me on Monday? And I, Resurrection Sunday will make a difference come Monday. In two ways, I want to talk just briefly. Resurrection Sunday affects Easter Monday. Resurrection Sunday creates awareness of your aliveness in Christ because it gives you an eternal perspective. This life is not all there is. Christ was raised. There is something that comes after this life. This life is not all there is. Christ is raised, and so also all who are His will be raised. When we can see this, the trials and the difficulties and the mundane realities of life take on different shades. They aren't necessarily necessarily less painful or sad, but this life in Christ empowers you to see and rest yourself on the great coming day of Jesus Christ. My life, my identity, my hope, my purpose, my meaning, who I am is caught up not in this subjective life of mine, but in Him. My existence is in Him. And Resurrection Sunday creates an awareness of this aliveness and gives us this Longer view perspective. The second way this aliveness helps you on Monday is that it helps you in your fight against sin. When you see the true life that is given in Christ, you begin to see that what is needed is not the gratification of sin, but the eyes to see the satisfaction that is already yours in Christ. Resurrection Sunday helps you fight sin because you see true life that is given to you in Christ. That the, the, the dichotomy, the battle you fight is not one of trying to, trying to say no to the gratification of sin so much as it is say yes to the gratification of sin that is already yours in Jesus Christ. Going back to sin after the resurrection is like being delivered from prison and bondage into true freedom. And then once you have that freedom, longing and looking and going back to the prison, trying to break back into prison. There's no guards posted on the outside looking outwards for all the people who are trying to break into prison, right? It's all the ones trying to get out. What kind of insanity is it that once you have this aliveness in Christ, that you would look back and long for slavery, That you would look back and long to go back into your sin and into slavery. No one, seeing what true freedom they have in their life in Christ, will march back into the slavery of sin. We often think Christianity is about killing desire. Don't don't want what's fun. Don't want what's good. Don't want this sin that's so pleasurable. Don't want what, what, what you desire. That's the way we. That's the way it's framed. And instead, be dour and awful and, and you know morose over here in Christianity. Christianity. That's that's not right. It, and it isn't about having too strong of desires. It's that you're you're too easily satisfied with something far less than the joy that you could have in Jesus Christ. It is as C.S. Lewis say. It says in his essays, "Weight of Glory." It's the kid satisfied with plain and mud pies at home. Because he's never heard of such a thing as a holiday at the sea. He says that God finds our desires are not too strong, but they're too easily satisfied. We're too easily satisfied to go run to our subjective joys. I'm too happy to be the BMOC in my own yard instead of actually trying to find true life. We're too too satisfied in our subjective joy. What is needed 
is the eyesight to see the true joy that is found in your life with Christ. Christianity is about placing your desires where they belong and letting your desires run wild for God and for His glory and your joy in Him. Do you know this Savior? Do you know life like that? Is your life one of constantly piling up subjective joys and finding yourself disappointed? I think you got to be honest, that's a lot of it. Piled up in subjective joys. And what we need is to be united to Him in His death and in His resurrection, seeing the life that comes through faith in Him. The day is coming when all who are united to Him by faith will have the full manifesting of their joy in Him because we will be with Him. On the other side, on the other side of that will be all of those who stayed chasing their subjective joy, chasing their subjective sin, chasing themselves, and they'll find themselves rejecting God, and they'll find themselves the recipients of His just punishment. This morning, do not wait until it's too late. If that is you, do not wait until it is too late. Today, as we hear God's call to repent and trust in Him, let us turn from our sins, look to Christ and His cross, see the forgiveness won there, and be brought to true life in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the resurrection of Your Son. We can be certain everyone united to him in his death will be united to him in his life. God, help us. My, my prayer, God, I want this, these people gathered here this morning, myself included, to have a living faith that makes a difference as we walk out the days of our life, God. Help us. Help us to see the joy, the beauty, the life that is given in your Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we would give ourselves fully to enjoying you and glorifying you above all else. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.